Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you. Abide in him. This is God's word. And to turn again to God's word, John, first John, excuse me, chapter two, we're continuing in this little adventure that we've been going through in this letter of first John. I think personally it's important to understand at least what I believe is the broader theme of this little book, and that is the fellowship of of Christ. Now that we have been transformed, how is it that we live together? The Greek word is koinonia, fellowship. It's an unusual word, this close-knit living together as God's people. How do we live together as God's people, and how do we live in a world that is at times hostile to our God. That is the broader theme. And, and you may remember um, that six weeks ago, Ollie began us with a reminder that this uh, fellowship has both a vertical and a horizontal relationship. In other words, we can truly relate to one another because we are relating well to God. It is impossible for us to say, well, I love God, but I really don't care for my brothers and sisters. Because our relationship with 
each other is informed by our relationship with God. If you have broken relationship with your brothers and sisters, then that tells me something about your relationship with God. That was our first week. And then the second week, Eugene reminded us how we are to walk together in a transparent covenantal relationship with, that withstands the scrutiny of light. We understand that. That really made an impact on me when Pastor Eugene shared that, that illustration about going into the toilet in the airplane when you're flying at night and you, and, it, and, and you close the door and suddenly lights on, you can see what you look like after 12 hours of travel. You know, there's an uncomfortable scrutiny when you are walking in the light and yet we as a fellowship in Christ are to live with transparency, walking in the light. And then the third week, Sam reminds us of how we are to walk together. The defining characteristic is this deep, sacrificial affection that can be experienced. It's not something we sing about. It's not something we just read about. This affection is felt and seen and experienced. And, and then fourth week, Caleb reminded us that we can have confidence in this fellowship because we have an advocate. Who is Christ Jesus? He bore my sin. He endured the wrath of God and made our relationship right. We can have that confidence because we have an advocate in Christ. Not because we are right. Not because we are righteous. But because He bore the wrath of God and He reconciled us to God. And then last week, Ollie reminded us that we are not simply to be like this religious ghetto that meets on Sunday morning and celebrates the goodness of God, but we are to be outward facing. We are to be salt and light in the community in which we live. And all this time, while our young pastors have been preaching the word, I have been growing a beard, which will prepare us for this Sunday the threat of fellowship. This is a difficult passage. And I'd like for us to get into it right away in verses 18 and 19, the source of the threat. This is really important that we understand where this threat is coming from. I'm not sure... Um, well, let me get to this in a minute, but... I find it fascinating that he would begin with these words of tenderness. Um, I'm going to say something in a, in a moment that's going to make me appear to not be this tender. But this is a very specifically chosen word, children. It's not just a gen generic sense for everyone under the age of 12. It is a very personal term. It's a, it's an in, a term of endearment. English is not that specific. So if Sam Bay goes into a room full of children and wants to call his children, if he shouts children, probably everyone is going to look. Oh, English, we're limited to, to call names. I would just say boys, but then all the boys would look. Right? This is a very specific term that the Apostle John is using. It's not every child, it's his children. My little ones. Now, now, the reason translators have to be careful with this is because this is a word of endearment that was politically correct in the first century, not so much 
the 21st century, because literally this word is um, the ones I beat. Those are my children. The ones I discipline, that's what we'd probably say. But literally in the Greek, it's uh, those of you I beat. That means those of you who have been disciplined under the care of my teaching. This message is for you. And this is it. It's the last hour. It's, it's the very last hour, or eskati ora. Now, this doesn't mean, literally, this is the last 60 minutes. Those would be different words. He's referring to divine time. That is the time that is kept by the one who created time and space and everything in between. This is the last era. It means God, this sovereign God, is moving time forward to his preordained conclusion. And this, from then until now, is the last era. Uh, I, I don't know in Singapore, do you use this term deja vu? It's actually a, a French term, which means to, to see again. Literally, it is a, a feeling of having already experienced a, a present situation. Now, just to be clear, this is a Western term. So it doesn't mean, oh, I must have experienced this in another life. This, this term doesn't mean reincarnation. It means the longer you live, the more you realize, I have not experienced new events and, and new feelings Every year, there, there's kind of a, a circling around of similar experiences that you have had before. So you're, you're in an experience like when I went into first grade one in Canada, primary one, it was the first time I'd ever spent the whole day without my mother. It was terrifying for me. It wasn't a sense of deja vu because I'd never had that experience before. I, I, I was sick to my stomach. I was throwing up in the boys' room. I never said a word all day. I was terrified. Yes, I remember this. And, and that was not deja vu. That was a first-time experience. But primary two, first day, I was like, whoa, I feel like I've been here before. I, I've, I've experienced this before. So I, I, I don't know. Have you seen this guy? Probably not. I, I'm thinking he's an American, African-American. I see him a lot in America because, you know, escatiora, it's the last hour. And, and so this tradition, Christian tradition, of putting a cardboard sign and warning people, look out, this is the last hour, walking up. I know this is not from Vancouver because in Vancouver our guy is Korean. I see, I see him out on the street as I'm going to my son's church. There he is, walking with this repent. It's the last hour. The end is near. And, and, and when I've come here to Singapore, I get this sense of deja vu. Sorry, I really don't have a, a right to say this, but these last several weeks I've been reading this avalanche of WhatsApps and emails and they're all coming by my, my laptop or, or my desktop, all, all about section 377A of the penal code. And you, you all know about this. And I'm like, whoa, I feel like I've been here before. B because in 1976, 
I arrived at church on Sunday and I told my pastor, you know, you know my biology teacher laughed at me in front of the whole class because I told him I believed in creation. And the next seven Sundays, we had this long series of sermons all about the growing Canadian hostility toward the church. And we began to organize, we began to protest, to preserve our freedoms, to celebrate Christ and believe in creation because we felt the threat of a hostile culture. And then in 1985, I was a youth pastor in California and the moral majority was started in order to do what? In order to protect the eroding Christian freedoms of the American church. We felt under threat. My senior pastor went to the city council. We, we lobbied in order to make sure we got politicians who agreed like us, who believed like us. We were, in effect, walking around with cardboard signs saying to each of us, one another, the end is near. We're under incredible stress. And then in the 90s, I was in Malaysia. The church in Malaysia feels under threat all the time. But this has created a reputation. Do you know your reputation? You should watch Futurama. This episode, you know, all the religious people coming out of their spiritual experience and they've got all their signs pointed at the world, judgment day is here, you're under threat, repent, sin no more, especially like the Asian cartoon on the, on the far right, shame on everything. You see, when we get under threat, we react because we're really not sure where the threat is coming from. We react everywhere. And we've developed a, re a, a, a reputation that is actually hostile to the gospel. We create a gulf that is wider between a non-believer and the cross. Before they can get offended by the cross, they're offended by my sign. They're offended by my fear. The Apostle Paul, or sorry, John, is writing a church that is genuinely under threat in the last hour. And so he writes them this. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. Let me ask you this. This is not a rhetorical question. Where was the threat? In the church or outside of the church? In the church. The threat to the church in the first century and in the 21st century is not that someone who doesn't believe is living a life below, beneath the standard of Christ. The threat to the church is in the church. So let me say three things about the Antichrist. First of all, please, it does not mean when somebody leaves GBC, they're the Antichrist. Because if they were not, they would have stayed with us. You understand, 
in the first century, there was no GBC, no ARBC, no, no denominations. There was one church. When it says, when they left us, they showed that they were not of us, that means they left the faith. They no longer believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what he means when he says they left us because they were not of us. They had not been transformed by the power of the gospel. Yes, they sang the songs, they read the word, but they were and remained unchanged. Secondly, Antichrist is not a person. It is a person with a specific condition. And I'm going to address that in a moment. Third, the Antichrist is not a threat from without. He is a threat from within. They went out from us. They have left the faith. Let me move on quickly. Um, yeah, that's our boat. You've heard about our boat? You may have overestimated our boat. I, I, I grew up on the, on the seaside near the Pacific Ocean, so I'm very comfortable on the water. But not everybody is. So every time I take friends or family out to where our property is, remote location, no power, there is a toilet, but apparently I made the hole a little wide. Sherry doesn't like it. It's just off the grid, off everything. And every time I take somebody out on the boat, people see that little dinghy and they get a little bit nervous and they see the water just like Peter they see the waves and they get even more nervous and I have to remind them listen the threat is not the water outside the boat the threat is when the water is in the boat so so do you hear what I'm saying church the threat to us is not the water outside these walls the threat is the water that has seeped into my heart that that's the threat that means this guy's got the sign pointed the wrong way. We should come to church every day with signs and remind every, everyone, each of us, you know, this is the last hour. We need to live different because this is the last hour. Let me talk then about the identity of the threat. Verses 22 and 23 says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Here's the problem we have. Well, sorry, one of the problems we have. Christians, we are lazy about messaging. We come up with the word. Let me be honest. God comes up with the word, and then we let the world define the word. If you don't believe me, just Google Antichrist. Whoa, it's just insane. Don't do it. It's, it's terrifying, right? I, just, it's just terrifying. There's, by the way, there's a lot of Western politicians in Google Images of Antichrist. Of course, you know, they're warped. They, they've got horns. they fire coming out of their heads. That, that's how ethnocentric we Angmo are. Jesus looks like us, and the Antichrist is some politician we don't like. That's, that's how it is. And see, the problem with allowing 
Hollywood to define the Antichrist is they make him so horrifically terrifying, we feel safe. And we don't recognize him when he's walking around in Singaporean skin or Canadian skin. We just don't recognize him because we're looking for something so much more horrible. That word Antichrist is only used by John, and it only appears in 1 John and 2 John. It is traditionally interpreted as one who is against or opposed to Christ. That makes sense to us, right? His aspirations are not political. He doesn't seek a career in the movies. He's sure not wanting to be a rock star. I say that because there is a rock star named Marilyn who calls himself Jesus or Marilyn Superstar Antichrist, something like that. You know, he, he wants to just freak out Christian parents because that sells. That sells. The sole purpose of the Antichrist is to sow division and dissension in the human heart. Where? Right here. That is his desire. But there, there's just a subtle error in our traditional translation. I, I, I mean, I, I understand it. When we, when we say anti, we, we typically mean that that's, that means we're against something, right? So antichrist is I'm against Jesus. If I'm antisocial, I'm against parties or, or, or being around people. If, if I'm an anti-fascist, that means I'm against totalitarian governments. So in secular contemporary English, I get that anti, or the Americans say anti, means against whatever follows it. And so we've been allowed our definition of a biblical word to be impacted by the secular contemporary definition. But in secular Greek, that word anti actually meant something else. This is actually an ancient manuscript of this little letter of 1 John, just one page, and an ancient signet ring. Uh, both of these are called antitypos. Typos, from typewriter, meaning words. Anti, meaning not against words, but instead of words, instead of the vocal speech, we begin to write it down. That is no longer typos, that is anti, replacing speech. Instead of signing my signature to, to give authority to whatever document, I use my signet ring. It's an anti-typos. Instead of my speech saying, yes, I give authority to this, I replace it with my mark. And so, Antichrist is not necessarily against Christ. It is worse. It is replace Christ. Do, do you understand at its very root, this is the beginning of the fall? Because in Genesis chapter 3, when the liar met Adam and Eve at the tree, he said to them, 
did God really say you can't eat this fruit? And remember, Eve was prepared with an apologetic. She was like, oh, we can eat everything in the garden except this tree. We can't eat of it or, or we will surely die. And then he said this, surely you won't die. God just knows if you eat it, you will be, hear it, like him. Do you understand that every one of us in here are made of human flesh that desires at our utmost to be the God who made us? That's why you travel all over the world and you see people worshiping gods they have made. That is the spirit of Antichrist. That is replacing Christ with somebody I feel more comfortable around and I feel more comfortable around me. I want to replace him with somebody who will never make a decision that I'm uncomfortable with. I make decisions that I like. Laksa. God probably wants me to be healthy. You probably would say, no, get your veggies. That's why it's not good for a man to be alone. Blah, blah, blah. You see, I have that in me. The preacher who preaches for the praise of men is guilty of this spirit of replacing Christ. The preacher who instead of teaching his flock how to feed themselves on God, God's word, that preacher who says, come to me as an authority to interpret God's word for you, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. The intellectual who reduces God to a concept that he can manage, that makes sense to him, that's the spirit of replacing Christ. I think I'm over-preaching my PowerPoint. Antichrist means instead of Christ, replacing him with me, my concept of who he should be, and that is why we have pastors who go bad. In the mid-60s, this fiery young preacher began his ministry in San Francisco. He, he was a dynamic, charismatic preacher. He was a good shepherd. He, he was a leader in the racial reconciliation movement. His church in the, in the days of the 60s was predominantly African-American. And I listened to his early messages. They were, they were full of truth. And then he began to bend. Slowly he began to replace Christ with Jim Jones. And this is taken from one of his recorded messages, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you need to see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you need to see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, and if you need to see me as, hear it, your savior, I will be your savior. If you need to see me as your God, I will be your God. In 1978, he led 926 followers to commit suicide in the jungles of Guyana. That's where we get the term drinking the Kool-Aid from. You know how you need to see me? As a broken down man of flesh. As a sheep who needs a great shepherd who is even now being transformed into a better image, into the image of Christ. That's how you need to see all of those who serve you. We are the same, or we will be replacing Christ. That 
is the attraction of all those who desire greatness. That's why the Apostle Paul said, how should you consider us apostles? No one in the church had more authority. He said, consider us this, as slaves of the Lord. And all that you should expect from a slave is that we be found faithful stewards of the gospel. I'm going to move quickly in the five minutes we have left. See, I'm, I'm out talking my PowerPoint. The antidote. Now, I don't always do this, but I think there is a, a bit of an acrostic we could use. First, first antidote. I think we should, the teaching of Scripture is, we should just assume that there are weeds in God's garden. This is taken from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. That is the Lord, sowing the seed of the gospel in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemies, the liar came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. You know, we just ought to accept it. This is an awesome church. We are God's garden. We have weeds. We, we have weeds. Just, just expect it. Don't, don't be surprised when division happens. It's biblical. It is what Jesus predicted. I mean, do you know that people go to the hospital to get healed? It's true, right? Why is it then that people go to the hospital and they get sick of something they never had when they got in there? Because there are some people in the hospital who are spreading infection. It just happens. And, and we, Grace Baptist Church, we're a hospital for the spiritually wounded, for the broken, for the sick. But, but there will be some weeds who have infection that may spread. The solution is not to live in fear. The solution is to consider the anecdote, antidote sorry, that John gives us I saw the principle when I was a young pastor in Saskatchewan. We, we had a farmer in our church. His name was Ron. He had four sections. That's four square miles, all planted in wheat. And by the time September came, the wheat all turned a beautiful golden color. But if you look closely, you can see there's some green specks in it. And I asked Ron, well, what is that? He said, the wind. I said, what do you mean the wind? The wind blows and weeds get in. In every farmer's garden... In every crop, there are going to be weeds. I'm going to get to the solution in a minute. Watch out for logs. My, my dad was a lumberjack, right? So he rode the logs down the river. Hey, do you have logs here in Singapore? Yes, we will have soon. They're cutting those trees down. <laughs> you, you remember this story, right, that Jesus tells of, of this blind surgeon who notices a speck of sawdust in his friend's eye and decides he wants to do surgery on him while he's got this big log in his own eye, meaning he can't see. The, the point of Jesus' illustration is pay attention to your weeds. Not your neighbor's weeds, 
Cultivate your own garden. Pull the log out of your own eye. Stop looking. We, we shouldn't be a group of people sin-sniffing in the church, trying to spot the ones who are viral and infectious. It's, it's not about that. It's about this right here. That's why you will constantly hear the pastoral staff say, the biggest problem we have in GBC, go further, the biggest problem I have in Singapore is me. When all of God's people are saying the biggest problem we have is me, then all of us are serving according to Jesus' exhortation. Weed your own garden. Pay attention to your own speck. And then A stands for allow the sovereign God to finish the story. Back to Farmer Ron. I said to him, hey, Ron, Ron. Well, I mean, those weeds, look how green they are. They're taking up precious moisture. What, what are you going to do about it? And his response was, ah, they'll all come up in the end. Meaning that when he threshes that wheat... His tractor is going to wreck everything. But if he was to take his tractor now out into the wheat, he would damage the wheat before it's ready for harvest. That's exactly what Christ said. Let both grow together until the harvest. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Let a sovereign God write the story you know, our, our brother Sam quoted Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. This is a fascinating verse. We all know that part of it. But you know the second part of Psalm 46.10? Be still and know that I am God. The nations will know that I am the Lord. Meaning, I don't need your help. God, God is great. His arm is not short that he cannot save. He invites us to be in his harvest field because he knows we need to be about our father's business, not because he's thinking, I wish I could get Ian to help me. God is about his garden. He is cultivating his garden. He is sovereign. He's writing the story. He's not sitting here thinking, I, I, I wish these elders would notice all the sin and grace. And, and, and begin yanking out people because I'm looking for people to be perfect as I am perfect. Anybody perfect here? No, none of us will be until he perfects us in glory. If you think you're perfect, you're a Pharisee. You've stopped learning from his word. I've got to finish in a hurry. Remain... Remain in the truth, verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. Abiding has two meanings in this scripture. First, Abide, remain in the truth, meaning the dogma, the body of teaching that you have been taught from the beginning. Don't think it's cool if your pastor says, hey, I got a new revelation from God, I want to add something to it. No, abide in what you have heard from the beginning. The authority is in the word, not in the pastor. 
If your pastor is replacing authority, he's replacing Christ. Remain in the Word, but secondly, remaining in truth, we need to understand in the Bible text, truth is not just a concept. Truth is a person. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm getting ready to show you the way. He didn't say, I can show you how to have life. He didn't say, you can memorize the truth and reproduce the truth in your discipleship class. He said, I am the truth. I am the life. We are to abide in Christ. And He abides in us. It is He who is constantly working in me to prune the garbage that has settled into my heart that I have picked up. Remain in the truth. And finally, emphasize the gospel. That both grow together until the harvest. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out His kingdom, all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, living in us. He is writing His salvation story. That, that's why when, when, the, when Westerners taught you to say, I have been saved, that is not technically, theologically, or biblically correct. Biblically, the Apostle Paul says, we are being saved. He is working in us. And the gospel story is God pursued this broken down Canadian. He captured my heart and he began to work in me. I didn't suddenly join a self-improvement class, learn how to be a better man. He began to work in me and generate life in me that didn't come from my Scottish immigrant parents. I didn't get the DNA from my mom and my dad. I got life from him. And he is doing that work in me until the day of its completion. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Philippians with confidence. I know that he will complete the good work he began in you until the day of his coming. He is working in all of us now. That is the gospel. It's not just about I was a sinner, I met him, boom, there's the gospel, now I have life. The gospel is him every day working in us. I am not capable of living and loving you the way God wants you to be loved. I, I, it's not in Scotland. It's, it's not in Canada. I, I never learned it in school. It's only something that His Spirit can do in and through us. And so when people meet me who knew me back years ago, the gospel screams, that's God who done that work. Because they knew me. And when, when I meet some old uni friends, you know what they say when I tell them I'm a pastor? What? <laughs> That's God working in me. 
He, he doesn't take the best. The best are busy. The best are always already invested, right? He, he, he took me. And the gospel is what even in days of threat, we are constantly to focus on. This God died for me. He bore the wrath of the Almighty. He was on the cross when I should have been. He reconciled, made me right between that God. And that's why we can relate together. That's what God has done in us. That's what He is continuing to do. I remember in 1982, I was doing door-to-door visitation with our senior pastor. And we knocked on this door. Of course, I'm from Canada. We really don't do home invasions in Canada, so I was really nervous about this. But he was doing all the talking. He was a big guy. He knocked on the door with all kinds of godly evangelical confidence. This guy met us at the door with a Budweiser, a beer in his hand. And uh, the pastor, in his strong southern accent, um, said, You know, son, God loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. And the man said, who was really from California, said, uh, Dude, I'll, I'll never go to church, man. Because, you know, you people are against drinking and dancing and smoking, and I like all of those things. <laughs> and my pastor said, no, you're, you're thinking 1940s. This is 1980. We're, we're against other stuff now. <laughs> Shame on everything. That, that's our reputation. But, but what if 5.7 million Singapore's, Singaporean citizens, what, what if they found out what we were for? What if they realized that everything they really needed in life could be found here? Life and love and forgiveness, peace and hope and truth, holiness and purity and purpose. What if they found out it could be found here? You think we have a parking problem now. My prayer, even in these days, when the church feels at threat at risk, my, my prayer is that more and more Grace Baptist Church would be known what we are for. We are for a God who is for people who loved us and gave himself up for us, who continues to work in us today for his glory. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. As you examine uh, your own heart, as in the light of this moment, you give scrutiny to your own life, your own garden. Do you need to do some weeding? Do Do you need to just say, oh God, in your spirit, come in. Pull these weeds. Or or maybe you're like me every other day and you need to say, whoops, I'm sitting in this throne and I need to get off again. And let Jesus completely have his way. 
I, I need Him to be Lord of this weedy garden. Would you just in this moment say, Oh God, I turn to you. Will you turn? Pull these weeds. Sit down in my life. Have your way. All those things that just now you felt anxious about, just at this very moment, you thought of it and felt anxious, that's a part of your life that he's not in charge of. That's a part of your life that you've been doing everything in your power to fix, to manage, to succeed. Would you be willing to give him that? And say, yes, yes, Lord. Rule even this. Do it for your name's sake. That you would be glorified in my life, in my family, and in your church. Father God, we thank you that you are still alive and at work in your people. That even in days of threat, we can be aware that the danger starts within us. So help us focus, to be alert, to allow you to finish your sovereign story in our lives and in your church. Guard our hearts, O oh God that we would avoid the tendency to be most offended by the sin we don't have. Help us to stop looking over the fence at our neighbor's garden. Help us to remain in your word and in your son. Equip us to focus on the good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close?